You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. Savior. All right, take your Bibles tonight. Turn to the book of James. The book of James. For you new Christians or you visitors, this is not my book. (laughs) I didn't write it. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote the book of James. Way back over there in the back of your New Testament, page 339 in mine. It's not going to help you a whole lot, though, is it? The book of James. Is that loud enough for you? I'm really kind of struggling with my voice today, um, doing all this hand-waving and preaching and everything that we've been doing today and uh, getting a little hoarse. Okay. Let's just read those verses together before we begin. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Tonight, we're going to begin, as I promised you for the last several weeks that we were going to do tonight, we are going to begin a study through the book of James on Sunday evenings. On Sunday mornings, we've been trekking verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, and we finished with a study on spiritual gifts that we were doing on Sunday evenings, and so I had set my sights and my goals several months ago to begin a, a, a series of messages through the book of James on Sunday night. So a couple of months ago, I began collecting materials and began reading, began outlining, and begin, began getting things together, and I'm excited about this night. I'm excited about be- beginning the study. I have studied the first chapter of James a good bit, but I never had studied much beyond the first chapter, and so it's going to be exciting for me personally, week by week in my study, as I walk through the book of James with you on a verse-by-verse basis. I've entitled this series of messages that are going to last, who knows, who knows how long, just however long it takes us to get through the book of James, but I've entitled this series of messages, the whole ball of wax, under this catch-all title of Faith with Feet. Now, I didn't do that to be cute, but I just really, it is kind of cute, but I really think that that really catches the message. It catches the meat of the book of James. We're talking here in the book of James of religion in shoe leather. That's really and truly what the book of James is all about. James is not talking about some kind of pie-in-the-sky kind of Christianity that never has any practical application in life. But the book of James, from the very first verse to the very last verse, demands that your profession as being a Christian make its way out and be, be hammered out on the anvil of life and find its expression in daily living. Now, James is so practical in his application of the Christian life that there have been those who really have not understood him very well who have accused him of being legalistic. There have been some, and I've read some commentators that really and truly kind of just hinted toward this thing, that James was very legalistic in his approach to the Christian walk and the Christian life. That's not true if you understand what James is saying. James understands that salvation is totally and completely by the grace of God. It comes through faith. It is not of works. But James's cry in his epistle is that this faith that we say we have 
somehow or another be able to show itself in daily living in a practical kind of way. So James's conclusion is that if your faith does not issue itself in action, if your faith does not make a difference in the way that you live your life, then James just says it, your faith is dead. You don't have any faith. It is not real faith. And so he marries this thing with faith and Christian profession. He says, it's not enough just to say, I believe. It's not enough just to say, I have faith. But he says, your faith, if it is real faith, is going to issue itself in the daily practicalities of living the Christian life. And so in reality, the what I've titled these messages is really true. We're dealing in the book of James with faith that has feet. We're talking about religion that is in shoe leather that walks itself out in daily life and issues in action. And so tonight, we're only going to deal with the very first four verses of the first chapter of James. And I've entitled this message, Facing the Trials of Life. Facing the Trials of Life. Every one of us is going to face some tests and is going to face some trials in life. I heard the story of a college student who was taking his college exams, and, and he made a zero on a college exam, and he went into the professor, and he said, Professor, I made a zero on this test. I... I don't think it's fair. I don't think I deserved a zero. And the professor looked at him and said, I don't think you deserved one either, but that's the lowest grade that I could give. You see, he failed the test. But James's cry is that God's people not fail the test of life, but be able to meet the test of life, be able to head, come head on into the trials of life. And that's what the first four verses of the book of James are about. Now in verse one, James introduces himself. He introduces himself as James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This James, he introduces himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who is he? Who is this guy? Well, in the Bible, we know there are reference to many, many men, several times, men that are called by the name of James. I believe that the evidence is very clear that the evidence points toward this James being the James who was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus himself. Now, how did he come to be the half-brother of Jesus? Well, Jesus was not born of a union between Mary and Joseph, you understand. Jesus was born from Mary, but from the Holy Spirit. And after Jesus was born, then through the natural process of husband and wife, then other children were born to Mary and Joseph. And so the sons that were born to Mary and Joseph were the half-brothers, if you will. They had a common mother of the Lord Jesus himself. The eldest son, Scripture tells us, of Mary and Joseph, was a fellow by the name of James. And it's my belief, it's my conviction that it is this James that is the half-brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, that writes this letter and writes this epistle. It's interesting that none of Jesus' brothers ever believed in him while he was alive on earth. While Jesus was involved in his earthly ministry, none of his brothers believed in him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. John tells us, as a matter of fact, in his, in his gospel, that Jesus is constantly in conflict with his brothers. About chapter 5, I believe it is, where Jesus has a head-on conflict with his brothers, and they're really just kind of laughing at him. They're kind of laughing at this thing that Jesus is doing in, in this public ministry that he's involved in. None of them believed in him while he was alive on this earth. But something happened. Something happened, and that something that happened to the apostle James was that after Jesus had been crucified and had been resurrected, James met the resurrected Christ, and he never was the same after that. The Scripture says that after he met the resurrected Jesus, he understood that what Jesus had been saying was in fact true, that this was the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, and James became a believer in Jesus Christ as Lord and as Master. 
This James, after he trusted Christ, as after he believed in, in Jesus as the Messiah, went on to be the leader of the Jerusalem church. He was the leader in the church in Jerusalem. When Paul writes about him, he, in Galatians chapter 2, he calls him a pillar of the early church. He really was. He was that foundation. He was a pillar. He was a strong, moving force in the early church in the first century. In Acts chapter 15, when they had the, uh, the, um, the conference in Jerusalem about circumcision, the apostle James was the one that moderated that conference. And so James was very important in the life of the early church. He was a very important individual. As a matter of fact, Scripture does not tell us this, but church history tells us that James, the half-brother of Jesus, went on and gave his life as a martyr. You know what they did with him? Church history says they took him to the very pinnacle of the temple and threw him down, and then when that didn't kill him, that they beat him with clubs until he was dead on the ground. The Jews, the Pharisees, the ones that had opposed the Lord Jesus put James, the half-brother of Jesus, to death. It's this guy. It's this guy, the pillar of the church in Jerusalem, the moderator of the Jerusalem council, the one who gave his life as a martyr for, for the cause of Christ. It is this man that writes this letter, and notice how he introduces himself. He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I were going to write this letter, and I had this guy's credentials, I'd probably say James, Ph.D., D.D.L.S., or whatever all those letters are that you put at the end of your name when you got all those degrees and everything. I mean, head honcho, man. Top dog at the Jerusalem church, moderator of the Jerusalem council, all those kinds of things. This guy who had all of the credentials to, to, to wave his flag and shout his own praises and his own glory introduces himself as James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good pattern for us to follow, I think. I think it's a good lesson for us in that. But he goes on and he tells who he's writing to. He says, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. To the 12 tribes, he says, who are in dispersion. This is the people that he's writing to. This is a reference to those Jews who are living outside of Palestine. Now, several times in the history of the Jews, they had been dispersed from Palestine under severe persecution the 12 tribes of Israel several times had been cast out of, out of uh, Jerusalem and out of Palestine and had to flee for their lives and were dispersed in all the countries around. At this day in the first century A.D., then many of them were still there. They had settled. They had raised families. They had never come back to Palestine. And so they were still, if you will, in this dispersion. It's to these people that the Apostle James is writing. But they are Christian Jews, and that's important. They are not just Jews, but they are Jews who have accepted Jesus as their Jewish Messiah. These are Christian Jews, and they are involved in persecution because they are Jews, first of all. The Jews have always been persecuted, but second of all, they are Christian Jews. So they're persecuted by the people that didn't like Jews, then they're persecuted by the Jews because they were Christians. They couldn't win. They were persecuted on every side, and Jesus writes to these folks in order to encourage them, to teach them, and to instruct them. Now, under the inspiration of the Spirit, then, the things that James writes become encouragement and become instruction for all Christians in all ages, and that means you and me. And the first four verses of the book of James is to encourage these people that are in the midst of tribulation. They're going through tests. They're going through trials. And James writes a word beginning this letter to these people that are going through trials. Folks, trials are a fact of life. I want us to go through a very simple outline as we think about Facing the trials of life. I want you to notice, first of all, the probability of trials. Notice the probability of trials. Listen to what James says in verse 2. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. 
Now notice what James does not say. Notice that James doesn't say, consider it all joy if you encounter various trials. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. In other words, you're going to encounter trials. When you do, consider it joy. Trials are a certainty of life, but when you encounter them, James says, count it all joy. Now, I want to say a couple of things to you about that. It's important that you understand your outlook and your attitude toward the trials of life because, you see, outlook determines outcome. Attitude determines action. It makes a difference if you expect that there are going to be trials, that there are going to be tests in life. They are going to come, James says, count it all joy, when you encounter various trials. I believe that's the very reason that Jesus warned his disciples of what was going to take place in their lives after he left them. Remember what Jesus said? He said, you're going to be tremendously happy, you're going to be superbly powerful, and you're going to be constantly in trouble. Constantly in trouble. They're constantly going to be beating your door down. They're going to be delivering you before the magistrates. They're going to be throwing rocks at you. They're going to stone you. They're going to put you to death. For my name's sake, Jesus warned them. He said, guys, just get ready for it. It's going to be a fact of life. It's going to happen. I believe the reason that Jesus warned them is so they'd be ready. It would encourage them and help them be able to face those trials so that they wouldn't be surprised when they came. Now listen, Christian, don't be surprised when you face trials and tests in life. Don't be surprised by that. It's a fact of life. It's going to happen. I've heard people say, well, if you just become a Christian, just get saved, there aren't going to be any trials. There aren't going to be any tests in life. Where did you hear that? You didn't get it from the Bible. I'll guarantee you didn't get it from the Bible. Scripture never even hints of anything as foolish as that or as ridiculous as that. The Bible says exactly the opposite, that when you trust Jesus as Savior, the trouble begins. <laughs> now, you're going to have trials in life, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. The difference in a Christian and a non-Christian is a Christian has the Lord Jesus living within to help us face the trials and to grow in the midst of trials, but trials are a fact of life. That's all there is to it. You must be prepared to face trials. I think a lot of us get blown away just simply because we have that kind of pie-in-the-sky attitude toward the Christian walk, that all I have to do is just love Jesus, <laughs> you know? Oh, man, that makes me sick. To hear somebody say, oh, just love Jesus, and you're not going to have any problems. Garbage, the more you love Jesus, the more problems you're going to have. Because the more you love Jesus, the more you're going to stand up to this world, and the more the world is going to oppose you. Trials are a fact of life. They cannot be done away with. Now, not only are trials a fact of life, folks, but trials are the will of God for your life. Now, I, didn't, I didn't believe that for a long time. I didn't understand that for a long time. I had a very uh, weird view that was based upon human reason, not based upon what the Scripture says for a long time about the trials and tests of life. But I've come to discover that the Scripture teaches that not only are trials and tests in life facts of life, but they're oftentimes the very perfect will of God for a believer. Whether he volitionally causes a trial to come into your life or allows it to come into your life, he must ultimately approve everything that passes into the life of the child of God. Therefore, trials and tests sometimes and oftentimes are the very perfect will of God for your life. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. So James says, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Now, that's the probability of trials. Now, let's look at the pattern of trials for the Christian. Verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. How many of you have got the King James here tonight? That says divers, doesn't it? You know, 
when I first became a Christian, I had to ask somebody what that meant. Divers, temptations, but divers have a special kind of temptations that other people, honestly and truly, I never heard King James English. I didn't understand that, that stuff. Divers, a modern translation of that word in, from King James English simply means various. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. The word means sundry. It means different kinds. In other words, trials and tests in life come in all sizes, in all shapes, and in all forms. The trials and the tests that I face today may be different from the ones that you face today, and the ones that you face tomorrow may be different from the ones that I face tomorrow. What's a trial to you may not be a trial to me, but ultimately... They are always trials to the one that is involved in the midst of them and the one that is encountering them. Trials come in various shapes and various forms. Now, I want you to understand something, and it's going to be important as you continue with us in this study through the book of James, that James uses the word trial and temptation interchangeably in his letter. He uses them interchangeably. And you have to read the context, the verses before and the verses after, and read the context in which he, he speaks in order to understand if he's talking about a test in life, a trial in life, or if he is talking about a temptation. Now, trials are a fact of life. They're oftentimes the will of God for the, for the believer. They come in various forms. They come in all sizes. They come in all shapes. But they ultimately come from only two sources. They come in different couches in different ways, but they ultimately come from two sources. Now, this is where I used to have a problem before I stopped trying to approach it from the point of human reason and just began to let the Word of God speak for itself. First of all, trials come from God to cause us to stand. Trials will come into the Christian's life and come from God for the purpose of causing us to stand. It's a fact of Scripture that God tests His people. He tested Abraham with Isaac to see if Abraham was pure, to see how Abraham would approach, would approach that. He tested Paul with a thorn in his flesh. He tested the children of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness before they were ready to come over, ready to cross over into the land of Canaan, out of the wilderness. Now this word, test or trial or temptation, may sometimes mean a test as you would test a new automobile. Like you got buy a new automobile and you take it for a test drive to see if it works and to see if everything is, is measuring up to par and if everything is, is as it should be. Uh, it's used uh, for a test of like a machine. It's the same word that the Apostle Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, when he says, Beloved, don't be surprised. Now, here it is. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing he said, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal in which you were involved because that ordeal has come upon you to test you. It has come for your testing. This word is used as, as a, a fire test metal. You, you heat metal up. You put it through the fire and it separates the alloy from the pure metal. It, it is to test a metal to see if it is alloyed or if it is full, if it's, if it's real. This test Listen now, this kind of test or this kind of trial is sent by God to cause us to stand. It is sent by God in order to shave some of the rough edges off of us. You see, God is going to conform his people into the image of Jesus. That's his purpose. That's the reason for which he called you, to begin to mold you and to make you into the image of Jesus. And sometimes in order to do that, he may have to put you through a trial. He may have to put you through the fire in order to round off those rough edges in order to mold you and to make you into the image of Jesus. 
oftentimes, and I've been guilty of this as well, but when we find ourselves in a difficult circumstance that is one of those trials or those tests of life, what is our first response? Our first response is to pray and say, Lord, change my circumstances, isn't it? I mean, that's the easy way. I just change the circumstances. But I really question if God is, is as much interested in changing our circumstances as he is in changing us. And sometimes he may use the circumstances of life to bring that task to fruition, to accomplish the task that he has of molding us and making us into the image of Jesus. He may sometime put us through the fire in order to purge off the dross, in order to smooth out those rough edges. Now, let me say something else about this. We're talking here about the forms of, of, of temptation or the forms of trials. They, first of all, come from God in order to cause us to stand. But let me say something here. Trials and tests in life are not always the result of sin in your life. And did you hear that? Trials and tests in life are not always the result of sin. Now, I believe there's times when God just may, in order to purge something from the life of a believer, just send him through the fire. If that's the only way, I think that's probably the exception and not the rule because usually just the strong conviction of the spirit that lives within the life of the believer is enough to purge that out of the life of the believer. But there may be times when God just chooses to send a believer through the fire in order to purge something out of his life and from his life. I believe I said, though, that that's probably the exception and not the rule. Just because you're going through trial or testing, believer, don't immediately say, well, it must be because of sin. I, and I've heard people say that. I've, I've heard believers say that. Well, somebody will go through a, a tough time in life, and they'll go through a time that really is a test, and it's a trial in life, and that believer's immediate response is, I wonder what sin he's got in his life, you know? And whether they say it out loud or just say it in their mind, what they're really thinking is, yeah, you jerk. <laughs> you know, there's some deep, dark sin in your life, and God just squashed you. <laughs> He just, you know, he's getting his pound of flesh out of you. He's going to take care of you. You see, that's what Job's counselors and advisors said to him, wasn't it? I mean, Job was a righteous man. And here's Job sitting on an ash heap, his body covered with boils, and his friends, his counselors are saying, well, Job, you just get right with God and take care of itself. (laughs) Job was right with God. It wasn't a result of sin. God was allowing him to go through a test. God was allowing him to go through a trial to grow him up to maturity. And exactly that's what the book of Job is all about. Tests and trials in life are not always the result of sin. So when you find yourself in a difficult circumstance, don't become so introverted and look inside and say, Oh, God, what have I done wrong? You may have done something wrong. That may be true. But I think that's the exception and not the rule. I think maybe what usually is taking place is that God is just sending us to school. He's just sending you to school. He's going to bring you one more step in that process of being conformed and made and molded into the image of of the Lord Jesus himself. He may have to do it by ordering a trial. Every test, listen, believer, your outlook determines the outcome. Your attitude determines your action in the, life of t- in the, in the midst of tests and trials. Every single test or trial that the believer goes through is a tremendous opportunity for growth. It is a tremendous opportunity for victory. God's test and his trials come to make the believer stand the other source of testing or trial or temptation if you will and it's better translated temptation when you're looking from this direction is not only do they come from god to cause us to stand 
They come from Satan to cause us to stumble. They come from Satan to cause us to stumble. Sometimes this word, trial, or testing, temptation, is used in the Scripture to mean a solicitation to evil, an enticement to evil. That is to cause the believer to stumble. That does not come from God. As a matter of fact, James' own words in a latter verse is going to say, God is tempted by no one, and God tempts no one. He's talking about the temptation to sin. God tempts no one to sin. God's trials or tests come to cause the believer to stand to be conformed to the image of Jesus. But Satan's temptations, his trials, his tests come to cause the believer to fail. Regardless of the source, it all has to come through the Father. And that's the perspective that the believer has got to see it from. You see, one that comes from God comes for your maturity. The other one that comes from the evil one comes for your misery. One is to cause you to stand. The other is to cause you to stumble. But regardless of the source, whether God orders it or he just allows it from the evil one, he must allow it. God can use it and we can grow and have victory in the midst of it. You see, that's the victory of the Christian life. The non-believer does not have that promise. He doesn't have that assurance that in every test and every trial, regardless of whether God orders it or God just allows it, that the believer can be, can be victorious in the midst of that and can be grown up in Christ Jesus. In other words, you can pass the test of life. You don't have to be like that old boy that made a zero on the college exam. Now, that's exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. That's an important verse. I want you to flip over there with me and read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. We've got 10 minutes, and we are going to make it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Listen to what Paul says. He says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Oh, Christian, you need to hear that. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, he pretty much answers all of our arguments right there. Because some of us would be willing to say, but man, you just don't understand. I mean, you just really don't understand my trials and my tests that I endure in life. You just don't understand. Mine are unique. <laughs> you know, I mean, nobody else really and truly faces the same kind of trials, the same kind of tests, that has the same struggles in life that I've got. You just don't understand that. And Paul comes back and he says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Well, thanks, Paul. <laughs> You know, he just chopped your legs right out from under you. Your temptations are not unique. Now, what you have one day may be different from what I have that day, but ultimately we're all going to face them all. No trial, no test has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Well, we're probably going to be like Moses when Moses argued with God and just kept questioning and questioning when God called him to go to Pharaoh because then you come up with the next question. Oh, but mine are so strong. But my trials are so strong, you just don't understand. They just overwhelm me, and there's no way that I can possibly stand up beneath the pressure of the trials and the tests that I face in daily life. And Paul says this, He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And with the temptation, will provide a way of escape. Thanks again, Paul. <laughs> we really appreciate that. 
You just stole every argument that we could possibly have. Every excuse that we could possibly have for not passing the test of life. Every trial is common to man. Every trial, when it comes, is not going to be beyond your capacity to withstand it because God always provides that way of escape in the midst of it. God is in control. Paul says it. He is faithful. And whether the trial or the test comes directly from the hand of God in order to teach you, to mold you, to make you, to cause you to stand firm, or whether it comes from the evil one in order to cause you to stumble, it ultimately must pass through the sovereign hand of God. Every test, every trial, everything that comes into the life of the believer must ultimately come right through the loving Heavenly Father. And whether he volitionally ordains it to happen or allows it to happen, it ultimately is his will. Tests are the will of God for the believer's life. And God always allows the believer the opportunity to win victory in the midst of it, regardless of its source, to be grown up, to be matured in Christ. That took me a long time to say the pattern of trials. They come in various forms, many forms, but ultimately only two sources. They come from God for your maturity to cause you to stand. They come from the evil one for your misery to cause you to stumble. But ultimately, it all must pass through the very sovereign hand of God and becomes his will for the believer's life and becomes a tremendous opportunity for growth and maturity in Christ Jesus. See, your outlook determines the outcome. The way you view the test of life determines how you're going to approach the test of life and whether you are going to become the victim or the victor in the trials of the test of life. Now notice third, the paradox of trials. The paradox of trials, and it really is a paradox because James says, consider it joy <laughs> when you encounter these divers or these various, these sundry, these different temptations. Consider it all joy. What? <laughs> what did you say, James? Consider it, count it all joy. You mean count it joy when I'm going through a trial in life? When I'm involved in a circumstance in life that tries to, to, to put me to the test? Do you mean count it joy then, James? And he says, yes. What a paradox. That is a paradox, isn't it? You know what a paradox is? That's a paradox. I'm not going to try to define it for you. <laughs> you don't know, you look it up later. That's a paradox. I mean, when I look at it from the human perspective, you mean to rejoice in trial? To rejoice in every circumstance? That's humanly impossible. That goes against everything that my human mind tells me. If I see it from the human perspective, it's a paradox. If I see it from the perspective of right here, right now, and that's the way most of us think. <laughs> we think for the moment, for the second. We don't look beyond the very instant of right now. And we come involved in a trial, a test in life, and immediately our, our response is, change my circumstances. If you look at it from that perspective, this is a paradox. You cannot rejoice. You cannot count it all joy when you encounter various tests, various trials in life. But if the believer sees the test of life from God's viewpoint, if he sees the purpose for the test and for the trial, if he understands that in God's hands all is not lost and that God the Father is sovereign, then there's ground for joy in every test in life. 
when you begin to see it from God's perspective and not human perspective. And that brings us to the very last point. This paradox of this thing of trials brings us to the very last point, and that's the purpose of trial for the believer. You see, if you understand the purpose that God has for allowing his people to go through trials, if you understand the purpose, then you're going to be able to have joy in the midst of those. Now, folks, I'm not talking about this jump up and down, shout, whoopee, hallelujah, somebody just bashed my car. There it goes. They're towing it off. Praise Jesus. No, that's, that's idiotic. That's not facing the circumstance. That's not what joy means. The joy of the believer goes, that's, you know, that's outward kind of a happiness kind of attitude. That's not joy. Joy goes far beyond the surface level and sees every single circumstance in life that there's hope. <laughs> that's joy. I don't give a rip what happens to me, that I know that I am in the hands of the very sovereign God of the universe, and that gives me joy. That means that I'll not be defeated by anything that comes into my life if I turn to the Father who is sovereign who ordered that trial or at least allowed it from the hand of, of the evil one. Do you understand that's what joy is? And so when you, when you come to the point of life where you accept the sovereignty of God, that nothing sneaks up on the blind side of God. You know, sometimes we think that. You know, we have a circumstance in life or a trial in life, and we start praying and telling God what's just happened as if he doesn't know, as if he just kind of snuck up on his blind side and just slapped him upside the face. I heard it. It doesn't happen. God is sovereign. He's either sovereign or he's not. He's either omniscient or he's not. He either knows all or he doesn't know anything. That's who God is. Nothing sneaks up on God's blind side. And so the believer has the promise and the assurance of joy in every, every circumstance that we can count it joy because God is sovereign. God has a purpose in the believer's life. So that brings me to my last point. We've seen the probability of trials. They're going to come. He says, when you encounter various trials, the pattern of those they come in various sizes and shapes. They ultimately come from two sources. They come from the hand of the Father, volitionally, to cause you to stand, the hand of the evil one, to cause you to stumble. But ultimately, God says that you can win victory in either circumstance and grow in me and in Christ and be conformed to the image of Jesus. The paradox, count it all joy. That's a paradox if you see it from the human perspective. If you see it from the godly perspective that he is sovereign, he is in control, then you can rejoice in trial if you understand the purpose of the trial, if you understand the purpose of the test. That's what James deals with in verses 3 and 4. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, that's God's purpose for testing. That's God's purpose for the trials of life. All that God does in the life of the believer is for a purpose. I lied, didn't I? <laughs> we didn't make it. All that God does in the life of the believer is for your good and for his glory. Now get that. All that he does is for your good and for his glory. He has a purpose for everything that comes into the life of the believer. What are the purposes for trials or testing? First of all, for your perseverance. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. God's purpose for testing in your life is for the purpose of perseverance. 
That test is to bring perseverance, endurance. It means to be steadfast, to be firm, to be able to stand. God's purpose is perseverance in your life that you may be firmly rooted. Have many of you ever lifted weights? You know that growing stronger causes pain? When you were a kid, you know, you went through growing pains. It always hurts to grow, doesn't it? You can go over there and you can pump iron for, for a few minutes, and the next day you'll be sore. Isn't that right? Because your muscles have been under pressure. That's right. Well, you can go back the next day and pump that same weight, that same number of reps, and you'll still be sore for a day or two, but ultimately that soreness will go away. And you can keep pumping that same amount of weight, that same number of repetitions, and you'll reach a plateau, and you'll not grow beyond that plateau. You won't get any stronger. You won't be sore anymore. You won't have any pressures. You'll just be pumping iron the same weight. But if you want to grow, what are you going to have to do? You have to add a little weight to it, don't you? You add 10 pounds to it, you pump that same number of reps, and the next day you're sore because you've pressed your muscles. And with each level of growth comes a level of weight on, on, on those weights. You see, that's the way it is with testing and with trials in life. If we are going to grow, it's going to have to have, there's going to have to be some pressure sometimes in our lives. And God's purpose for testing is, first of all, for your perseverance. It is for your endurance that you might be able to endure. Second of all, it's for your perfection. He says that you may be perfect and complete. Now, that word perfect is the Greek word teleos. You're not interested in that, but I'm going to illustrate with it. That word teleos does not mean sinless perfection. It means to be mature. It means to be full grown. An oak tree is the teleos of an acorn. Now, if you want to be an acorn, then just ask God to not ever test you. Ask God to not ever try you if you want to be an acorn. But if you desire to be an oak tree, then God in that process is going to have to send you through the fire sometimes in order to grow you up, to make us mature. That is God's purpose for our perseverance, but also for our perfection, for our maturity in Christ, as we talked about this morning, that we might grow up to the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. That's God's purpose. And I've got some rough edges, and sometimes God's going to have to trim some rough edges. But I have the promise that, that all of it is for a purpose, and it all comes from the hand of a sovereign God. And third, and this is last, the purpose of trials is for your plenty, for your perseverance, for your perfection that you might be matured, and third, for your plenty. Notice what he says at the very end of verse 4, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. You see, God has a plan for your life. God's not working against you. He's working for you. He's on your side. <laughs> it's strange that you should have to try to convince Christians that God is on their side. But honestly and truly, sometimes we do. Some of us lose sight of that. That God really is working for our good and for his glory and that he really is on our side and that he wants us to have everything that he has to offer the believer. The idea in this word that we might be lacking in nothing is the idea of in your character. That's what God's interested in most of all is your character, who you are. That in your character there should be no inadequacy, but in your character as a believer that you should be equipped to face every trial of life. God's purpose for tests is your perseverance to stand firm, is for your perfection that you might grow up to be mature in Christ and for your plenty that you should be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, having everything in character, to face and meet the tests and the trials of life and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, some of us, instead of being made better by trials, are made bitter. Outlook determines outcome. Attitude determines action. 
And I think it boils down to the individual believers understanding that God is in fact sovereign, that he is a sovereign, loving God, that he's on your side, believer. He's not working against you. He's working for you and in you. But in order to work through you, he's got to first of all work in you. Before you can do something, you've got to be something. And that's what God is ultimately concerned with, you being who he wants you to be in order that you can do what he wants you to do. For him to work through you, he's got to work in you. And sometimes that necessitates him putting you through the fire to purge the dross. And if you as a child of God don't have the right attitude when you face the test of life, then instead of becoming better in the test, you'll become bitter. And I've seen it happen. Christians that became bitter in the test of life when really what God was wanting to do was to mold them and make them firmly into those believers. Fanny Crosby, one of the great hymn writers, when Fanny was eight years old, she was already blind, spent most of her life blind. But when she was an eight-year-old blind girl, she wrote this hymn. She said, Oh, what a happy soul am I, though I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that many people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind? I cannot, and I won't. I think Fanny Crosby made an A-plus in the test of life. I believe she made an A-plus in the test of life. She later wrote as an adult that great hymn that we love to sing, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine, Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. The Apostle Paul faced the test of life, came to an understanding that God is sovereign, even with a thorn that was in his flesh, that God was sovereign, that it was there for a purpose. Paul said in 2 Corinthians that three times, he said, I prayed that this thorn that is, was in my flesh would be removed. And God's answer came back. Remember God's answer? My grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. You remember Paul's response? All the more then I'll glory in my weakness, for when I am weak, then he becomes strong. And God had placed that test or that trial in the life of Paul to mold him and to make him further into the image of Jesus. So what about facing the test of life? Well, there's a probability of trials. Count on it, folks. They're going to come. Your outlook determines the outcome. Your attitude determines your action. They'll either make you better or they'll make you bitter. Be prepared. You'll face the test of life. The pattern, they come in various forms, ultimately only two sources, from the Father to cause you to stand, from the evil one to cause you to stumble. But God is sovereign regardless. The paradox that you can rejoice, have joy in the midst of that when you understand the purpose. God's purpose is for your perseverance, for your perfection to mature you, and for your plenty, that you should be lacking and complete, lacking nothing. That's God's purpose for trials. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I just ask that um, that you'd work in, in our hearts, in our, our minds, our understanding to to be able to see this from not the human perspective because it really is a paradox. We understand that from the way that humans would think to rejoice in difficult circumstance. That's ridiculous to our mind, but not to yours because you have a purpose in all and you're sovereign in all things. Help us to see it from your perspective, to see it from your heart, to see it from your mind, from your purpose of what you're wanting to do in your people. 
Lord, let us be those kind of people that can count it all joy. Count it all joy because we trust you in every circumstance of life. That we can become the victor and not the victim in the test and the trials of life. We bless you. We praise you for that assurance and that promise. And we say it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand with us. And pray.